Welcome, everyone. You are listening to Forged in Fire, where we explore how LGBTQ plus leaders develop their leadership superpowers. You'll hear from guests as they share how they navigated their journey through adverse and crucible experiences to develop into amazing leaders. Forged in Fire is hosted by Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram and Dr. Liz Cavallaro. Hi, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram. I'm an astronautical engineer in the United States Space Force and one of the senior transgender officers in the military. I'm a passionate advocate for the value inclusion brings to organizations. And I'm Dr. Liz Cavallaro. I'm an adult development scholar and associate professor at the U.S. Naval War College. I'm also an experienced researcher, interviewer, leader development practitioner, and professional executive coach. Please join us as we discover the inspiring stories of how LGBTQ leaders are forged. Hello and welcome to another episode of Forged in Fire. Joining us today is Tamara Adrian. Tamara is a lawyer and law professor and has been a lawmaker in the National Assembly of Venezuela since she was elected in 2015. Tamara was the first transgender person elected to office in Venezuela and only the second transgender member of a national legislature in the Western Hemisphere. She's a retired professor of undergraduate, postgraduate, and doctoral programs at the Andre Bello Catholic University and a professor at the Central University and Metropolitan University of Venezuela. She is a prolific author of articles and books relating to matters she teaches, as well as LGBTQ law. Additionally, Tamara is the president for the Committee of the International Day Against Homophobia and Transphobia, and is the president of the Board of the Directors of GATE, Global Action for Trans Equality. She also served as the co-secretary, general alternate from 2013 to 2015, and the world trans secretary of the International Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Trans, and Intersex Association from 2010 to 2013. She's a member of the Scientific Committee for the Chair of Human Rights and Sexuality of the UNESCO and a member of the Board of Directors of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. Among so many other things, Tamara has been involved in basically all strategic litigation concerning LGBTQ rights in Venezuela and Latin America. Tomorrow, we are so excited to have you joining us here on Forged in Fire. I mean, it's amazing the things you've done and the things you continue to do for LGBTQ rights. What we'd really love to understand across this interview is not only what you're up to today, but importantly, what got you there? So I'm going to throw it over to Liz for kind of the first question as to how you became the amazing leader that you are today. In a previous interview, you were asked about your experience of coming out, and you spoke a little bit about the fears associated with that. And you said, you're fearful of coming out because you think the worst things will occur to you. In fact, some bad things may happen to you, but at the same time, so many wonderful things start to occur, and you realize that it was necessary to come out in order to become a real person, not a kind of impersonation. Not easy, I know, but necessary in order to grow up. Some people would tell you that it is necessary for you in order to accomplish your task in this world. We were hoping you could share a little bit with us about how that coming out experience unfolded for you and allowed you to find your own task in this world and how that has informed your leadership journey thus far. 
Oh, thank you for that question. I, I, I guess that I will start by saying that um, uh, nobody actually wants or decides to be an LGBTI person. It's uh, the destiny you have to face in very uh, different environments. The fear LGBTI people face is actually the same, even in in those countries in which uh, equal rights have been achieved and uh, somehow there have been social changes in acceptance and discrimination uh, against. Uh, LGBTI people has received because of public policies, education, and other social changes. Uh, the fear is actually the same. Oh my, what will become of me if I go out uh, of my closet? And uh, uh, what people will think of me and what will become of me? Actually, in, in many cases, the closet is not uh, has um, glasses all around, and everyone knows. Uh, and when you come out, people say, oh, what did you do it so late or did it so late? When you come out, you are so fearful of what might become of you. In some cases, this danger is real. Uh, particularly in those uh, countries in which uh, more than 70 in this moment or around 70 in this moment in the world where um, just being gay or, or trans, it's criminalized uh, by the laws and you expose yourself even to be condemned to uh, that penalty. But in, in those countries in which those those kind of criminalization or this kind of criminalization do not exist. Uh, I guess uh, the same fear occur. We are forced to to help those who are coming uh, behind us in order to accept who they are and make somehow easier for them to or be accepted and uh, to come out of the closet. And I, I guess that has been a very driving force in my case. And uh, sometimes I understand that this uh, also helps other people that are not necessarily LGBTI people. For instance, once I was stopped in the street by a woman and, and she uh, told me, oh, you are Tamara Adrian. Oh, great. I, I wanted to thank you because of what you do and uh, because uh, you helped me uh, to decide uh, what to do with my life. And, I, uh, and that's the, the kind of prejudice and bias we all have. And I told myself, oh, this is a, a lesbian woman that decided to get out of the closet. But not, that was not the case. I, uh, the, the, the explanation she gave to me was, um, listen, I uh, was married in a very unhappy marriage for more than 20 years. I was even uh, beaten in, in my marriage was, was um, um, a chaos. In uh, hearing at you, I decided to divorce, and now I have my own job. 
I am not rich, but I can support myself. And I never thought it was possible to do. Then I, I understood that what we do is not necessarily for the, uh, strictly for the LGBTI community, but for everyone. Because in, in fact, we become a symbol of freedom somehow and a symbol of liberty somehow. Tamara, did coming out and overcoming that fear change your outlook on life or your perception of what your role in the world was? Sure, of course, certainly, with no doubt. <laughs> with, uh, <laughs> yes, um, uh, because we are all trained, I, I will say master, to, to become men and women uh, from the very beginning of uh, this training in the very uh, early childhood, we are told how to behave, what to do, what not to do. In my case, when I accepted, uh, I was a trans woman and I became a woman actually. And I started to notice this various in somehow insidious forms of discrimination against women in uh, that sometimes are not even felt as discrimination by by women in general because they were they were trained in order to behave in that way that was a shock for me and uh, i started to uh, to be very close of feminist groups and in many cases uh, those feminist groups did not realize how deeply enrooted these uh, forms uh, of behavior are interiorized by women. And um, for instance, uh, three, two years ago, three years ago, just before the pandemics, I uh, made extensive survey about LGBTI people living in Venezuela and LGBTI people Venezuelan and living in exile. And um, uh, one of the findings that was more shocking to me was that in the case of discrimination within the family, violence verbal violence and physical violence within the families, the aggressor was mainly the mother. Uh, by far, uh, around 68% of the cases, it was the mother, the, the perpetrator of the violence, and father was in second place or in, even in some cases in the third place. And, uh, that was talking to me because uh, we all have bias, yes. And I had this bias thinking that was the father, the, the main perpetrator and, 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 and the cause of violence within the families. And when I um, had these numbers that were very consistent for every sexual orientation or gender identity, very similar, um, I... I started to, to ask myself about the role of women in, per, in perpetuating 
the patriarchal system in as tools of perpetuation of the perpetuation of this patriarchal system. And uh, it was another tool, but uh, of course, uh, to conclude with uh, with your question, when I uh, made my transition, I faced myself to the the fact of understanding those uh, forms of of discrimination, violence, um, sometimes very very subtle, very um, uh, sometimes not not very perceptible against women. I found it fascinating how you spoke about the differences that you noticed in the world before transitioning and after. And it's interesting because you spoke earlier about the experience of speaking five different languages and how that enables you to experience the world in different ways and augments the work that you do. And then you've also had an experience that many people have not, which is experiencing the world from two different genders. And so I'm wondering how you have incorporated those variety of perspectives that you have access to, to do things like overcome bias and recognize things that perhaps were previously unseen or or not realized by many of us? And how has that helped you as a leader? Okay. Uh, Many, many, I'm I'm a very, very uh, avid uh, reader. I, I read a lot or when I have the time, I read, I try to read a lot. And among this, um, uh, books I cherish very much. It's uh, probably Orlando um, from Virginia Woolf, that uh, one of those books uh, that I uh, remember the most. Uh, I don't know if you have uh, read it, but uh, I recommend it. Um, actually, the the uh, story, it's about a person who um, lives uh, around uh, 300 years into genders. Orlando was a man before, and then uh, one, one day, uh, he's, a, uh, he's a she now, he, he, she's a woman now. The explanation of how that happened uh, in the Roman, it's not very clear. Uh, nonetheless, uh, it happens that uh, she now has to live as a woman and her perception about the world, it's very different. And I read that book long before my transition, by the way. (laughs) And uh, um, it's an uncommon privilege for a person to live, actually live in two genders and actually have the, the perception of the world from two different perspectives, uh, because that gives you a very comprehensive view of the world that it's deprived for most of the, of the people when you, for yourself to, to live in only one gender, uh, you actually are blind to many uh, things and to many perspectives. And when you force yourself in a way to see the world in a much more comprehensive uh, world uh, way, you are like Orlando, a person that it's much more avid to understand the world as a whole and to acknowledge that there is not such think as a difference or radical difference between men and women. 
Tamara, you took a journey of fighting for yourself and fighting for recognition of who you are with just your name and your gender on, on legal documents in your country, all the way to starting a political party and running for office, getting elected to the National Assembly. So it's clear that somewhere in your journey, there may have been a shift from how you think about and fight for yourself to how you think about and fight for others and fight for collective rights and opportunities for LGBTQ people and others, as you've already mentioned. Was there something in your journey or something you experienced that made that leap and that switch possible to say, it's not just about me, it's about everybody else too? Yes, of course. It's very clear at one moment that uh, no uh, no person is an island. And uh, actually, they, they, they say it's no man is an island, but in this case, uh, no no person is an island. Listen, in African philosophy, recent philosophy, and I've been reading a little about that in the past uh, two years. Uh, there is a concept. Uh, which is a philosophical concept, but now I'm using it from the political point of view, is the, the concept of Ubuntu. Ubuntu was uh, the, uh, the form, well, actually it was uh, created just after the, the death of Mandela. It's uh, uh, the force uh, of collaboration among people, respect, collaboration, and um, the, the fight for coincidences uh, as a uh, human being is a whole. And I, I love and cherish this uh, idea uh, of that everyone is able to contribute to the, um, the common will, the common good. At the same time that uh, as uh, no person is an island, we are forced to have this fight done in a way in which we collaborate with uh, each other. And uh, as soon as I understood that many, many years ago, before knowing actually the, the, the concept of uh, Ubuntu, I understood that uh, it was necessary to organize the fight, organize people, to uh, create awareness, uh, to uh, create alliances uh, with other movements, and to um, make people understand that we have much more in common than things that divide us as a human as a, uh, human beings, and uh, in general, that those things that are considered to be things that put us uh, apart from the other are uh, constructed by uh, those who precisely do not want people uh, and human beings to become one. In your efforts to convey that message to the many different groups and communities that you've worked with and supported. Where have you seen the biggest wins and the biggest wins for other people to embrace that same ideology and see that collective human wholeness um, around the causes that you've worked with? I 
do not see the fight for equal rights as um, one that can be measured in triumphs, I mean, in events, but in a continuous line of improvement of social and economic conditions for uh, the excluded populations. And if you see uh, the, uh, the fight from this pr perspective, you will find that things have changed. But this happens uh, with, for instance, with racial issues or with uh, women uh, rights, you will understand that this change is very slow from social point of view. Uh, women have uh, had the right to vote for almost 100 years or more than 100 years in, in, in some countries now, but uh, and equal rights for less time. Uh, nonetheless, um, violence uh, based in gender still a common threat and even increase in some contexts. And the um, uh, racial issues, for instance, uh, show exactly the same. Uh, racial segregation and misgeneration had been uh, legally prohibited in most of the countries or uh, even, I, I may say, uh, in all the countries in the world in this moment. Nonetheless, a racial issues still a problem, and uh, uh, the views of supremacists in various contexts, which do not mean uh, the same thing in in Africa or in, in Middle East, or those supremacists are very different, continue to exclude people on the grounds of the color of, of the skin of people. And when I see these examples, and I compare them uh, with the, the case of LGBTI people, I, I tell myself, oh my, uh, the first country uh, in granting equal rights was just uh, this century, basically. Uh, in, in just um, 22 years, 23 years, uh, we have now equal uh, marriage in more than uh, 40 countries in the world. And the legal recognition of, of um, trans people, uh, it's now in Latin America, for instance, in Mexico, Costa Rica, Colombia, Ecuador, Brazil, Uruguay, Argentina, Chile, Bolivia, Peru, uh, and now in Honduras, in probably in Salvador. So when, when you see there is a, a, a legal change that is very rapid, but what I ask myself is the law uh, the only the only tool of change? I, I uh, as a lawyer, I say yes, it's necessary, but it's not the only tool of change. And you, you have to have public policies, you have to have education, you have to have in order to to provoke this social change that is much more slow that it's, it's slower than, than, the, than the legal change. And um, I don't know, uh, when I, I see the, the path we have, um, we have walked in the past 30 years, 
in the point where we are now from the legal point of view, there is certainly a huge change around the world. But at the same time, from the social point of view, uh, this change uh, might not have been so fruitful, so deep as we wanted it to be. I recently read the, the survey about the, the um, uh, Jews, uh, the homeless Jews in New York and around 45% of them are LGBTI people. So it means that in, they have been excluded and ex even expelled of their ha homes uh, very early. And uh, of course, that's unacceptable, but at the same time, that makes me think all the things, I think about all the things we have to do in order to achieve the social change. So staying on the thread of change and how LGBTQ leaders create change, clearly the ability to communicate is a big part of that. And that communication can't be done just in an echo chamber where all you're talking to are people that already agree with you or other LGBTQ people. Now you, as someone who both speaks five languages, you've appeared in a documentary about name changes in Venezuela, you've had a feature film uh, that was inspired by your story, are clearly a communicator that uses those tools to reach audiences uh, across your country and around the globe. Is there something about your journey, whether that's coming out or transition or other things as you've developed that gave you kind of an extra set of communication skills or a way to bridge that gap to drive change? And how can we use these communication tools, including media, to support that messaging? Yes, of course, and I am very grateful for that. I, I, I have had not only um, doctoral studies in law, but I was able to uh, be part of the Vital Voices uh, project. I had uh, the opportunity to attend uh, Harvard Kennedy School in, um, in particular regard to, to the tools um, that conduct to the wheel of change. Uh, I've been able to participate in various, and now I think a lot of um, uh, trainings that uh, provide you with this ability uh, to, to, to think uh, about the wheel of change and how can you incide in this, in this change and uh, contribute to the change. And uh, at the same time, uh, over the years, I, I have understood that you can... Oh, okay. I started by asking myself how to be tolerant with the intolerant. That's a tough challenge. That's a challenge. Yes, of course it is. I mean, that's a huge challenge for someone that predicates the, the, the tolerance as a tool for changing the, the world. Uh, and uh, you, you are faced to various forms of intolerance in uh, people that are, are ready to basically to kill you if they could. Uh, and uh, how, to be, how to be tolerant with the intolerant? In, in this um, path to answer that question, I 
started to understand that those who are actually intolerant in to the, that extent um, are surrounded many times by other people that only mimic their intolerance, but they are not as intolerant as those who are deeply intolerant. In uh, strategically, I started to reach those other that could be convinced. And uh, I started to create groups for, uh, for instance, talk about um, religion, beliefs, talk about spirituality with all these people, talk about human rights and their struggles and, and their needs. Uh, one of the, of the things you learn uh, when you study negotiation process is that you have to understand the needs of, of the other you're negotiating with and, and uh, to uh, understand the various forms of needs that you might have financial needs, needs for recognition, so that, those, for, those needs you have. <clears throat> Sometimes you are able to enter, to get into a process of uh, somehow kind of process of negotiation uh, with those who are intolerant and you start to understand that you can have allies everywhere. I mean, this same week we are talking um, this uh, past um, um, mon Monday, yes, uh, I had a, a uh, meeting with the Episcopal uh, Council of Venezuela, and uh, we uh, proposed them to encompass the um, instruction of the Pope to decriminalize all around the world uh, LGBTI people. And in the case of Venezuela, we have a criminalization in one sector, in the, in the army. Uh, people who belong to the army can be condemned to one to three years in prison and, and dismissal, dismissal of, the, of, the, of the army if they are gay. Uh, and the argument was uh, to make the church to be part of our fight uh, for the criminalization uh, of, of um, uh, gay people in Venezuela. Um, and uh, we had a very fruitful and very frank and very open uh, talk for about one hour and a half about that point and other points. I mean, how the church can help in order to secure the... Um, uh, schools uh, for LGBTI people. And the argument was we have had uh, just in one state of Venezuela uh, last year we had 23 uh, Swiss, suicides of young people in, in that uh, state and uh, around 45% of them were relating to uh, bullying based on the sexual orientation or gender identity of uh, the uh, these people that committed these young people that committed suicide, and uh, uh, the the argument was: Do you think it's good 
to be part of this problem? Or can you uh, try to do what the Pope actually asked you for, which was to accompany all the persons, uh, um, notwithstanding their sexual orientation or gender identity? And we ask them to be part of the solution. I don't know if they are going to, uh, to decide because the, the assembly of the Archbeps and Evex will take place in July. And from now until then, we will have to, to continue to, to, to press for, for them to, to uh, decide in accompanying this, um, this fight. But uh, what I want to, to, to talk about is that you can find ways to create alliance with those that, uh, because of your bias, think are your enemies, and not necessarily uh, are your enemies. That story really illustrates what you spoke about with the the long, slow journey that is change and where there may be some things that happen relatively quickly. There are other things that not only take time, but you face setbacks, you face uh, intolerance and other frustrations. Um, you were also quoted as saying that while there is no magical solution, I am realistic, deeply frustrated, but hopeful. So how is it that you maintain that hope despite setbacks? How is it that you keep your energy up um, and continue drawing on that motivation to keep going even in that face of those challenges? My understanding that if you do not act, things will never improve. Even they can, make, they can get worse. And uh, uh, that we have, uh, as I say, uh, no person is an island. You have to do this in coalition of all the persons you need and you can in order to avoid backlashes um, and in order to uh, impede those forces who are denying your existence and you even your right to live uh, to, uh, to be uh, able to uh, win uh, the, in, in this particular moment. Tamara, in that answer you just gave, you talked about you know, not only the fact that if you don't act, nothing will improve, but how you keep up the energy for all the, the challenges that lie ahead. What I want to understand is how do you decide where to put your energy and on what challenges? Because we can act locally, we can act nationally, we can act internationally. There are so many challenges out there for LGBTQ people and, and LGBTQ leaders in particular to tackle. How do you pick and choose among those with where can you have the most impact or is there something else that drives you as you look at the many challenges that we're facing? Listen, um, you are, as a car, you have a, a gas tank and it is, it is limited and, and you have to decide where to go and uh, how to use your gas tank. 
And uh, precisely, I think uh, um, those fights who are more beneficial for for the group, uh, for the region, or for the world are those who are that I privilege, and uh, I take uh, them um, in in more care. And what I try to do is, at uh, the same time, to be part of those who, uh, one, create awareness, two, uh, try to um, create capacity building for the new generations. In, um, because uh, um, in that way, uh, creating capacity building, you are able to have these other people doing the things that you cannot do and um, um, act in in coalition with these new activists. And uh, three, I guess that uh, in the past years, I understood, because I was for a long time just a law professor and a social activist uh, using NGOs, and, and acting as NGO. But I understood at one moment that uh, you cannot change, deeply change, the relevant things if you do not also act in politics. And uh, that's when I, I understood that I had uh, also to be part of this, of this fight from the political point of view. What happened is that every time I needed something to be achieved, I had to go and talk and convince a politician about the merits of this of this uh, fight and uh, ask her or him to become the the paladin of this um, of this fight. But I understood that it was somehow easier to be this person that actually was engaged with other politicians directly at the same level uh, and uh, requesting uh, and proposing things at the same level that they are doing it. Then I um, started to shift the strategy uh, from being a NGO person to being a political person. We're very interested in the work we're doing in capacity building, as you spoke about, and enabling others to do this work and expand that circle of influence. How is it that you enable that capacity building for others? How do you pour into others? And what is the the guidance or wisdom you provide to enable them to take on the fight? I'm a very fortunate person uh, because I, um, for many years, I have um, instructed in uh, create capacity building in in some particular uh, brilliant young people, and now they are uh, instrumenting the capacity building for other people. They just ask me. They do all the job now. They create the groups. They uh, find the places where this capacity building it's uh, in, it's taking place. Um, they um, contact and uh, hire the professors, and that, and then 
I, I am part of those who actually uh, give the instruction and create the capacity building. But now, now I am no longer the one who is uh, organizing the, the capacity building uh, as it was in maybe the early 2000 and until probably 2013, 2012, when it was the, the, the one that was uh, organizing the, uh, the groups for, for creating awareness and capacity building. Tomorrow, one of the things we believe is that the LGBTQ developmental journey just gives us kind of some leadership superpowers, as it were, or they may be powers that other people, other leaders have, but they tend to be concentrated often in LGBTQ individuals. If you look back at the journey you've been on and in facing the adversity and the crucible moments that you faced, is there one skill or capacity that you built in that journey that you could say, I wouldn't have had that skill if I hadn't come out and been myself and been authentic? I, I don't know if this is a word. I think it is a word in English. Uh, comprehensivity. I, uh, is the fact that you, you are able to uh, encompass uh, the the analysis of the of the reality and the facts and propose actions in a very much and much more comprehensive way than other leaders uh, because you take into account many points of view many many points of view um, not only of course LGBTI people but uh, all people that are, are coming from very different uh, env- environments and, and with uh, very different uh, perspectives. That's, that's, by the way, the goal of the social movement with political um, activity that I am creating. I've been creating since uh, last year. We are engaged in getting the, the authorization from a National Electoral Council, uh, which is a movement of movements. Uh, I understand now that um, uh, everyone has interests, but we also have common interests. And uh, by organizing people around their common interests, uh, women, people with disability, elder people, uh, social uh, workers, um, um, even people engaged in prostitution, uh, LGBTI people, I mean, and putting them together, they can come to a common goal as group. But at the same time, if they are part of a larger group of groups, they also start to encompass the fight of the other groups and uh, create a common goal. And that's what I'm working in in this moment. And uh, uh, even considering to to be part of the primary presidential elections in, in Venezuela.
One of the phrases we often do like to use is in English is that a rising tide lifts all boats. And that, I think, kind of encompasses what you just said. That is, for those of us that work in human rights uh, and civil rights, advancing those, when we get a victory in one area, it enables the next potentially in another area. And I think that's really exciting. Now, we have probably time for one or two more questions uh, as we, we wrap this up. Uh, but it's been an amazing journey speaking with you. Your examples around how you build that greater capacity and extend that ability to influence across multiple different communities, um, I think really speak to one of the things we're interested in hopefully contributing as a result of this project and our work. And something we like to ask our contributors is, what was it that made you want to participate to say yes to our request? And what is it that you would like to see come out of this project? What would you hope that we could achieve with this work? I, I guess that every window you have in order to spread your points of view, your thoughts, and uh, your, what you imagine or can be the the future world. It's uh, uh, necessary, and I am very grateful for this invitation. At the same time, I understand that uh, you being part of the of the wheel of change, uh, because uh, uh, it's uh, it's necessary to 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 keep the wheel of change uh, turning. Uh, because if it stops, you uh, will not get not get the final result you're ask you're expecting uh, to get. And uh, uh, for instance, um, I am very worrisome about uh, for the United States and uh, the backlash that uh, the abortion rights and uh, other rights and the situation. Uh, of these, all these uh, acts that have been um, proposed uh, in around 20, no, uh, I think 32 states in the United States against, uh, against trans people. And, uh, but I understand as well that as an opportunity. I feel that in some places in which equal rights were achieved, uh, People accustom themselves uh, to have those rights and um, did not feel the pressure or the need to uh, fight for more equality and for more rights. And uh, uh, those threats, threatens against uh, civil rights, human rights, are the opportunity again to uh, put the will of change turning uh, um, in in favor of uh, more rights? I think this this kind of moment it's necessary or might be necessary in order to uh, make people uh, engage in in the in the local, in the global, and in the regional fight for more rights. And as I repeat every time, as no person is an island, you're obliged to uh, act 
not only locally, but also regionally and globally, because if in a country uh, there is an injustice, that will be an injustice for the whole human being. You've summed it up so beautifully in the way that we need to work to continue bending the arc of history towards justice. We may have setbacks, but without that work that we're doing, it will never continue improving. But if we do keep doing that work, we can keep moving forward towards better and better solutions and justice for more and more individuals. Now, as we prepped for this interview, you asked us a question about how we can convince LGBTQ activists around the world that there is a global fight uh, against our rights and to act accordingly on all these levels that we just talked about. And I think that what we're doing and what you've talked about through this interview is providing those different perspectives that are out there, getting people to think internationally uh, and understand some of the stories that are happening all around the world and finding where those common points of connection are that bind us together and that we can work on solutions that work for all of us. Are there other things that you're doing or any thoughts you want to leave us with to make the community at all levels work together to continue bending that arc of history towards justice? Um, You mentioned a point that's very, very important. This is a, a, us, okay, when we started, and I am part of the people that started this fight uh, in the past century, Uh, when we started past century, this this fight, uh, we thought, and we construct it uh, as a global movement. And um, with, let's say, common um, strategies that were um, agreed um, from time to time, such as the use of strategic litigation, the use of coalitions, the use of of uh, uh, legislation uh, in order to uh, make um, the changes appear and happen. And suddenly, in in the later uh, decade, or even at the beginning of this of the past decade. Uh, 2010, 2011, uh, the fundamentalist groups started to join and use exactly the same methods. Uh, That's what you see, that uh, the radical uh, movements of the um, evangelical churches are, are acting together with uh, the radical um, movements of the Catholic Church and they are acting together with uh, some radical political parties, very, very, um, very fundamentalist political parties uh, that are acting together and financing the, uh, the biologist, biologist um, wing of, of, the, of the feminist movement um, that are anti-gender and denied existence of gender, um, and uh, they 
are acting together. They are creating NGOs and now acting at the level of the OAS and the UN and other international organisms, acting all together. And now you know that you have this whole movement that has a common with various, very different uh, actors that have a common goal, which is to recede into uh, um, LGBTI rights and women's rights uh, and sexual reproductive rights all around the world or to impede them to be achieved in those places in which they are not being achieved. And if you understand that, you know now who the enemy is, or at least you start to see how they are acting, and that forces or to us to innovate and to change our strategies. Uh, as uh, after 20 years now, they are not so effective as they used to be, and uh, that's the reason why, for instance, at the same time that you see the anti-propaganda law, um, that the LGBTI propaganda law enacted in Russia or in, in uh, some of the uh, former USSR uh, countries, you see at the same time what is happening at the uh, United States um, um, Supreme Court, and uh, you see what is happening uh, with the the racial movement uh, around the world, and you see, then if you see the the whole picture, and if you see the trees, uh, you start to to understand that in this moment you cannot act alone. That you have to create the widest um, possible number of alliances in the, the widest possible number of collaborations in all the fields, because we are not, not now fighting for LGBTI rights, we are fighting for human rights at large. Well, Tamara Adrian, as our first guest from outside the United States, we really appreciate you helping us see the forest instead of those individual trees so we can look as broad as possible. And we can guarantee you won't be the last guest we speak to from around the world so that we continue to address international LGBTQ leadership development and can work to understand how all of us can become the leaders uh, and the change makers uh, that we have the ability to be. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you to you for this opportunity. And I, I want to congratulate you for this initiative. And uh, I, I want to, to talk particularly to everyone that is hearing this podcast, that the change is in his, her hands and just go for it. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was a perfect ending. Thank you for listening to this episode. Forged in Fire is hosted by Brie Fram and Liz Cavallero. Produced and engineered by Frida Castellanos and Christina George. Guest management by Trey Wirth and original music by Bridget Benemark. 
The views and ideas expressed by the hosts and guests of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the organizations or institutions they represent. To learn more about Forged in Fire, please visit us at forgedinfire.org.